Section 19 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 13, verses 1 to 14. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Let every soul, etc. The diligence and accuracy with which Paul treats the subject of obedience to rulers in his instructions concerning the life and moral conduct of a Christian evidently proves him to have been compelled to it by some urgent necessity, and this, since it is invariably connected with the preaching of the gospel, could be pointed out with the greatest advantage during the first age of the church, for there always exist rebellious spirits who believe that the kingdom of christ can only attain its proper exaltation and supremacy by the abolition of all earthly dominions and that the liberty which christ has purchased for them can only be enjoyed when they have shaken off every yoke of human slavery the jewish converts however were more under the influence of this error than any other nation because they regarded it as very disreputable for abraham's descendants whose kingdom had been in a most flourishing state before the coming of the redeemer to continue in bondage after his appearing another circumstance also alienated the jews as well as the gentiles from their rulers because governors then not merely hated piety but persecuted religion with the most hostile disposition believers considered it therefore absurd to acknowledge those as lawful masters and princes who were contriving to wrest and to take away the kingdom by force from christ the only lord of heaven and earth these reasons in all probability induced paul to confirm the power of the magistrates with more earnest care and diligence in the first place paul lays down a general precept which comprehends the sum of what he intended to say in the second part he subjoins such circumstances as are calculated to explain and prove the precept he denominates those higher powers not supreme because they exceed the rest of their fellow-men though they had not obtained the highest authorities they are denominated magistrates on account of their relation to those who were subject to their command and not from any comparative superiority which existed between the different governors themselves in my opinion the great object of the apostle in adopting this expression was to remove the frivolous curiosity of those who frequently propose the question by what right rulers have attained their power while we ought to rest satisfied with the dignity of their station for they had not acquired this rank by their own virtue but had ascended their distinguished eminence by the hand of the lord paul removes by mentioning every soul all kinds of exception so that none can claim an immunity from a common obedience for there is no power but of god our subjection to magistrates ought to rest upon their appointment by the divine administration and if it is the will of god to govern the world in this manner the despisers of power endeavour to invert the divine order and resist therefore god himself since to contemn the providence of the author of political right and power is to wage war with omnipotence it ought moreover to be understood that the powers of magistrates are from god not as the pestilence and famine and war and other punishments of sinners are said to be from him but because he has appointed them for the lawful and right government of the world for although tyrannies unjust despotisms and usurpations being full of anarchy are not to be considered as regular governments yet the very right of empire and of dominion is appointed by god for the safety of the human race since therefore rulers are allowed to protect from war and to seek remedies for injuries and mischiefs 
the apostle commands us freely and of our own accord to regard reverence and honour the power and dominion of magistrates as useful for mankind for the punishments inflicted by god upon the sins of men are not properly denominated administrations but those means are so called which are expressly appointed by the great ruler of the world for the preservation of legitimate order but they that resist paul threatens punishment to all those who oppose the providence of god in this matter because none can resist omnipotence but to his own ruin we ought therefore to act with great caution that we may not rush upon this divine threatening nor do i confine the meaning of the word damnation to that punishment only which is inflicted by magistrates as if the design of the apostle was to show that rebels against authority will be punished according to law but every kind of divine vengeance in whatever manner it may be exacted for he in general teaches us what end awaits those who enter into a contest with god for rulers are not a terror to good works but to the evil wilt thou then not be afraid of the power do that which is good and thou shalt have praise of the same for he is the minister of god to thee for good but if thou do that which is evil be afraid for he beareth not the sword in vain for he is the minister of god a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil for rulers he now commends to us the honouring of princes on account of their usefulness the illative particle for must therefore be referred to the first proposition not the following sentence the lord was desirous by establishing magistrates to provide for the tranquillity of the good and to check and restrain the frowardness of the bad and the safety of the human race is preserved by these means for unless the fury of the wicked is opposed and protection afforded to the innocent from the unbridled passions and desires of the disobedient all society will immediately be involved in one common ruin if this is therefore the only remedy by which the human race can be defended and saved from destruction we ought to protect it with great diligence unless we are willing to avow ourselves the public enemies of the human race the additional remark wilt thou then not be afraid of the power do that which is good intimates we have no ground for abhorring magistrates if we spend a life of virtue nay any person by the very desire to shake off or remove the yoke from himself affords a tacit proof of a wicked conscience engaged in plotting some evil paul here speaks of the true and genuine duty of the magistrate and notwithstanding many rulers frequently degenerate from this character we ought always to show them the obedience due to governors for if a bad prince is the scourge of the lord for the purpose of punishing the people's sins we ought to consider our vices to be the cause why this great blessing of the lord is changed to be our curse let us never cease therefore to stand in awe of this good appointment or ordinance of god and this we shall easily accomplish if we impute all the evil to be found in it to ourselves we here see god's design in the appointment or establishing of magistrates and its effects would always appear if so excellent and valuable an institution were not corrupted by our own faults besides princes never so much abuse their power by harassing the virtuous and the innocent as not to retain in their despotic rule some semblance of just government no tyranny therefore can exist which is not in some measure of use in affording protection to human society paul has also distinguished two parts considered by philosophers to constitute the well-ordered government of a state namely the rewards bestowed on good men and the punishments inflicted upon the wicked the word praise according to the hebrew idiom is taken in an extensive sense for he is a minister of god to thee for good magistrates may hence learn the nature of their own calling for they do not exercise dominion on their own account but for the public good 
nor is their power unbridled but restricted to the welfare of others in fine they are under an engagement in the execution of their sovereignty both to god and man for as god's ambassadors and transactors of his affairs they must necessarily render him an account besides the very ministry entrusted to them has a regard to their subjects to whom on this account they are debtors private men are admonished that the divine kindness protects them by the sword of princes against the injuries of the wicked for he beareth not the sword in vain another part of the office of rulers consists in restraining by force the unruly inclinations of the wicked towards the commission of vice when of their own accord they do not suffer themselves to be governed by laws and magistrates afflict upon their crimes those punishments which the judgments of god demand for he expressly declares that they are armed with the sword not merely for vain show but for the punishment of evildoers an avenger to execute wrath implies the same meaning as an executor of god's indignation the use of the sword which is put into their hands by the lord proves the truth of this position a striking passage for establishing the power of the sword because if the lord when the sword was entrusted by him to the magistrate also ordered the rulers to use it he obeys the commands of the governor of the world as often as he inflicts capital punishment on the wicked by exercising the vengeance of god all those who consider it a wicked act to shed the blood of the guilty contend with the power of god himself wherefore he must needs be subject not only for wrath but also for conscience's sake for for this cause pay ye tribute also for they are god's ministers attending continually upon this very thing render therefore to all their dues tribute to whom tribute is due custom to whom custom fear to whom fear honour to whom honour wherefore ye must needs be subject paul now repeats the command given in the commencement concerning obedience to magistrates as an inference with this illustration and improvement that they must be obeyed both on account of the necessity imposed by man and in compliance with god he mentioned wrath for the vengeance which magistrates can demand on account of the contempt shown their dignity implies that we must not yield them obedience because we may not be permitted to resist with impunity men armed and in power as we generally endure injuries which we have no means of repulsing but our submission must be voluntarily undergone and our conscience is obligated to the performance of this duty by the word of god if therefore we had it in our power to provoke and despise with impunity a magistrate when unarmed we are no more allowed to attempt it than if we perceive the punishment immediately hanging over our heads for it is not the duty of a private man to refuse obedience to a magistrate put in authority over us by the lord the whole of this discussion and inquiry relates to civil government those therefore who exercise dominion over their conscience endeavour without effect to establish by this text their sacrilegious tyranny for for this cause pay ye tribute also he deduces on this occasion where he makes mention of tributes the reason for their being established from the very office of magistrates for if their duty is to defend and preserve uninjured the tranquillity of the virtuous and to oppose themselves to the abandoned attempts of the wicked such an object can only be accomplished when they are aided by power and firm protection tributes therefore are paid by law for supporting such necessary expenses but this is not a proper place for entering upon a more full discussion concerning the manner of collecting and using taxes or tributes nor is it our duty either to prescribe to princes how much they ought to expend for individual purposes or to call them to account 
it becomes governors at the same time to remember all their possessions from the people are to be regarded as a public benefit not an instrument of inordinate desire and luxury for we see the purposes on account of which tributes when paid must be used according to paul namely that kings may be supplied with assistance for the defence of their subjects render therefore to all their dues the apostle appears to intend to give here a comprehensive summary of the duties owing by subjects to their rulers namely to regard and honour them to obey their edicts laws and sentences and to pay tributes and taxes obedience is intended by the word fear customs excise and all other imposts are included under the expressions taxes and tributes this passage confirms what he mentioned before that kings and other rulers deserve to be obeyed not from compulsion but because obedience is pleasing to god for he does not wish them to be feared but reverenced with voluntary esteem and honour owe no man anything but to love one another for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law for this thou shalt not commit adultery thou shalt not kill thou shalt not steal thou shalt not bear false witness thou shalt not covet and if there be any other commandment it is briefly comprehended in this saying thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself love worketh no ill to his neighbour therefore love is the fulfilling of the law owe no man anything some consider this to be taken ironically as if paul answered the objection of those who contended that christians were burdened by enjoining them any other precepts than those of love i do not deny that it may be taken in the following ironical sense i accede to the demand of such as admit only the law of love i prefer however understanding it in a simple sense for i think paul wished to refer the precept concerning the power of the magistrates to the law of love that none might consider it weak as if he had said when i request your obedience to magistrates i require only what all christians ought to perform according to the law of love for if you are desirous for virtuous men to prosper and not to desire this would be contrary to the feelings of humanity you ought to study and zealously to labour to give validity to the laws and statutes that the people may be obedient to the guardians and protectors of the laws by whose blessing and favour the tranquillity of all is secured charity therefore is violated by the introducers of anarchy which is immediately followed by the confusion and disturbance of all establishments for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law paul's plan is to reduce all the commandments of the law to love that we may be assured of our obedience to the commands being conducted in a proper manner when love is maintained and we should be prepared to undergo any burden by which the law of charity may be preserved entire and unbroken the precepts already given concerning obedience to magistrates in which no small part of love consists are thus strongly confirmed by paul some feel a difficulty in this passage which they cannot easily solve because the love of our neighbour is taught by paul to be the fulfilling of the law since no mention is in this case made of the love of god which ought on no account to be omitted paul however is not considering the whole law but only our duties towards our neighbours it is indeed true that the whole law is fulfilled when we love our neighbour for true love to men springs only from a love to god and is an evidence and effect of this excellent grace paul's inquiry here relates only to the second table and his observations are confined to it alone as if he had said the person who loves his neighbour as himself has discharged his duty to the whole world the cavil of those sophists who endeavour to prove justification by works from this passage is truly nugatory and impertinent vain and trifling 
for paul is not speaking here of man's ability to perform the law or not but states a condition which is nowhere fulfilled and obeyed we do not deny the observance of the law to be true righteousness when it is said men are not justified by works but since none either have performed the law or can do it we say all are excluded from salvation by its obedience and our only refuge is in the grace of christ for this thou shalt not commit adultery we cannot hence infer what precepts are contained in the second table since he subjoins in the conclusion and if there is any other precept it may appear absurd for paul to omit the precept concerning the honour due to parents which had the greatest reference to the subject in hand may not the apostle have observed this silence for the very purpose of not obscuring his argument and though i dare not assert this yet i find nothing wanting to complete his object that if god's whole design by his precepts was only to instruct us in the duty of love we ought to use every exertion by which this might be obtained every enemy of contention must readily grant that paul by such passages as this was desirous to prove that the whole tendency of the law is to induce us to cultivate mutual love with each other and we must therefore supply what he passed over in silence that obedience towards magistrates is not one of the least important parts of a duty by which peace is cherished and brotherly love preserved love worketh no ill to his neighbour he proves from the effect that love contains everything delivered in the commandments since every one influenced by true love will never think of injuring his neighbour for what else does the whole law forbid than our doing no injury to our neighbour we ought also to adapt this to the present purpose of the apostle for since magistrates are the guardians of peace and equity every one desirous to preserve the right of each individual in the state inviolate and to protect the lives of all from injury must defend to the utmost of his power the rank of magistrates the enemies indeed of government display their desire for doing injury his repetition of the passage love is the fulfilling of the law must as before be understood to relate to that part which regards human society for no allusion is here made to the first table of the law which is wholly devoted to the worship of god and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed the night is far spent the day is at hand let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light let us walk honestly as in the day not in rioting and drunkenness not in chambering and wantonness not in strife and envying but put ye on the lord jesus christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfil the lusts thereof and that he now enters upon another subject of exhortation for since the rays of heavenly light have now begun to shine upon us towards the dawn of day we ought to imitate the conduct of those who are employed in the midst of light and in the presence of their fellow-men for they take diligent care not to perpetrate any base or dishonourable action since they are assured by committing any kind of offence they will be exposed to the observation of too great a number of witnesses but it much more becomes us who always stand in the presence of god and of angels and are invited by christ the true son of righteousness to behold himself to avoid every kind of shameful conduct the sum of the whole amounts to this since a proper season as we well know has now arrived for our rising from sleep let us cast away everything pertaining to the night let us shake off all the works of darkness because darkness itself is already dispersed and devoting ourselves to the works of light let us walk as we ought to do in the day the intervening part of the sentence 
for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed, ought to be enclosed in a parenthesis. As this is an allegory, we will carefully examine the meaning of each part. Paul means by night, ignorance of God, and all who are kept in it wander and sleep as in the night, for unbelievers suffer from blindness and stupidity, and this last is indicated by sleep, which is the image, as the Apostle says, of death. The revelation of divine truth, by which Christ, the Son of Righteousness, rises upon us, is termed light. Rising means to be girt and prepared for the performance of those offices of obedience which the Lord requires from us believers. Works of darkness indicate base and flagitious actions, because night, according to the Apostle, is free from a sense of shame. The armour of light implies honourable, sober, and chaste actions, to which the day is usually devoted, and arms are mentioned rather than works, because we must serve as soldiers under the Lord. The sentence, and that, at the beginning, must be read by itself, for it depends upon the former doctrine, and means, besides what has been already mentioned. Paul says, the time is known to the faithful, because the vocation of God and the day of visitation require newness of life and manners, as he afterwards, by way of explanation, makes it to be the hour of rising. The Greek word for time signifies occasion or opportunity, for now is our salvation nearer. This passage is variously tortured by interpreters. Many refer the word believing to the time of the law, as if Paul had said, the Jews had believed before Christ appeared, which I reject as harsh and strained, and it would be absurd to restrict a general doctrine to a small part of the church. How few of the whole church to which he wrote were Jews! This language would not suit the Romans. The comparison of the day and night, in my opinion, removes this difficulty. The sentence, Our salvation is now nearer than when we began to believe, refers to the time preceding their faith. For, since the adverb admits of a doubtful signification, this, as appears from the following remarks, is a much more proper sense of the passage. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. This is the occasion mentioned. For, although the faithful were not now received into the full light of day, yet he justly compares our knowledge of a future life which shines upon us by the gospel to the dawn of day. For this day is not taken, as in other places, for the light of faith, in which case he would not have said that it approached, but it was actually present, nay, was even now shining as in the midst of its progress, but relates to the happy splendour of the heavenly life, whose commencement is now discovered by the gospel to recapitulate the whole, we ought, from the very moment when God begins to call us, to direct our attention to the coming of Christ, as from the first rising of the day we infer the full light of the sun to be at no great distance. He says, the night is far spent, because we are not buried in thick darkness as unbelievers, to whom not a single spark of light and life appears, but the hope of resurrection is placed before us by the gospel. Nay, the light of faith, whence we obtain a knowledge of the near approach of the full splendour of heavenly glory, ought to rouse our exertions and prevent us from being torpid in our earthly career. But a little after, where he orders us to walk in light as during the day, he does not continue the same metaphor because he compares our present state in which Christ shines upon us to the day. But he was desirous to encourage us by various ways, by meditating at one period on our future life, and reverencing at another the presence of the light of God. Not in rioting. Paul hath here mentioned three kinds of vices, each of which he has distinguished by two names, intemperance and luxury, in our manner of living, venereal desire and its consequence, impure conduct, envy and contention. 
if these actions are attended with so much disgrace that even carnal men are ashamed to perpetrate them in the presence of mankind we who walk in the light of god ought to refrain from them when we are withdrawn from the sight of all observers although strife precedes envying in the third class of vices mentioned by paul he undoubtedly intended to teach us that contention and dispute flow from envy since every person anxious to attain great eminence feels envy towards others ambition is the cause of both these sins but put ye on the lord jesus this metaphor taken from our apparel which is calculated either to adorn or disfigure us frequently occurs in scripture a dirty and torn garment disgraces its wearer while a clean and beautiful one secures him additional regard and esteem to put on christ means our being surrounded and protected in every part by the virtue of his spirit and thus rendered fit for the performance of every duty of holiness for the image of god which is the only ornament of the soul is thus renewed in us for paul regards the end and design of our calling since god by adoption engrafts us into the body of his only begotten son on condition that we renounce our former manner of life and become new men in christ jesus hence the apostle says in another passage galatians three twenty seven that believers put on christ in baptism make not provision for the flesh while we carry about with us our flesh we cannot entirely neglect it for our conversation in heaven is accompanied with our earthly pilgrimage we must therefore so take care of all things pertaining to the body as to use them for affording help in our journey without making us lose sight of our heavenly country heathens themselves say the demands of nature are few the appetites of man are insatiable whoever therefore labours to gratify the desires of the flesh must not only fall into a state of dissipation but be overwhelmed in the very depths and abyss of profligacy while paul instructs us to curb our desires he assigns our want of contentment with the sober and legitimate use of what we possess as the cause of all intemperance by merely supplying therefore the wants and necessities of our faith and not our carnal lusts we shall use the present world without abusing it End of section 19